0: We're listening to a sermon from Iron City Church for unity, for diversity, for the city, and for the glory of God. All right, be honest. When was the last time you were invited to a party that you didn't want to go to? When was the last time you were invited to a party that you did not want to go to? There might have been a number of reasons you didn't want to go. Maybe you were too tired. Uh, Maybe you had questions about how fun the party was actually going to be. You know, if I'm honest, this party sounds kind of lame. And maybe it's the other people who were invited to the party that put you off. Maybe you thought, that's not really my crowd. I don't want to hang out with those people at that kind of party because even though you wouldn't ever say it, the thought of being at that party with those people is scandalous. Friends, when was the last time you were scandalized by something? Someone. When was the last time you were horrified, mortified? Maybe it was something you saw on TV. Maybe it was a crime you heard about. There's lots of scandalous stuff in our world, but at least at church we have Jesus. Good old, nice Jesus. And you know, he's never scandalous, right? He's always in line and neatly and consistently and ever so courteously fits into our mold and our expectations, never keeping us off kilter because it's Jesus we're talking about, right? And how he relates to people couldn't ever be scandalous. Or could it? Beloved, today I want to talk to you about the scandal of God's grace. And depending on what you think of that grace and what you think of yourself, this will either be the worst or the best news you've ever heard. Friends, we're going to look at the Bible To think about the scandal of God's grace. A scandal we really see in the context of two parties. Two parties we see in our passage today. And I want you to think about which party you would want to go to. Which party you'd want to be a part of. I want you to compare and contrast these parties. Because after all, the people hosting them. And their invitations. Their guest lists. Are very different. I want you to think about which party you'd want to go to, and even more important, importantly, which one you need to go to. Be honest and turn to Mark 2. Mark chapter 2. It's on page 786 of those pew Bibles around you. I strongly encourage you to open a Bible and follow along with me. If you're new to the Bible, the big numbers are the chapter, the little numbers are the verses. Mark chapter 2. This fall, we've been looking at the Gospel of Mark, which asks the most important question we can ever answer Who is Jesus? who is Jesus. And two weeks ago, we saw that Jesus is the one who teaches like no other, who heals like no other and forgives like no other. And in doing so, Jesus was making clear that he is God and there is no other. Uh, This Jesus, is one we should stand amazed at, as we sung earlier. And indeed, as we saw in Mark 2, verse 12, when the people saw what Jesus could do, they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. And what a privilege, friends, that we get to see even more Of this amazing Jesus. And my prayer is that in seeing Jesus today, you would see your great need of him and his big heart for you. And in light of this, you would receive him rather than resent him. Let's look at God's word and see the scandal of God's grace. I mentioned two parties earlier. These will be our two points for this sermon. And the first party we see is the party for the unrighteous. Point number one, the party for the unrighteous. The party for the unrighteous. And this is the party with Jesus. This first point we'll cover verses 13 through 15, Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 13. We're going to walk verse by verse slowly. Hear now the word of the Lord. He, Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Okay, pause. At this point in Mark, we're used to seeing what we just read, right? Jesus is near the Sea of Galilee as he's been before. The crowds are flocking to him and he's teaching. We saw this in chapter 2, verse 2. Many were gathered together so that there was no more room and Jesus was preaching the word to them. Right? We're seeing Jesus about his normal business. And even what he goes on to do in verse 14, look with me, as Jesus passed by, okay, so earlier in chapter 1, verse 16, we saw Jesus passing by the Sea of Galilee, this is business as normal, verse 14, as Jesus passed by, he saw, okay, we talked about this a few weeks ago, Jesus sees, he's not blind or indifferent, he's on the lookout, and who does he see, verse 14, as Jesus passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, Sitting at the tax booth. Ah, interesting. Jesus sees this tax collector who will later come to know by the name of Matthew, the one who wrote the Gospel of Matthew, same guy as Levi. But the point now isn't Levi's writing or his name, but his profession. When Jesus sees him, he's a tax collector. Nowadays, working for the IRS or other financial institutions isn't all that controversial. Right? One of our elders, Aaron Gillette, works in collections. And we got no problem with that. But in Jesus' day, opinions of tax collectors were different. You see, the Jews lived in a land that was under Roman occupation, and the Romans were oppressive. Any Jew then who worked on behalf of Rome was really seen as a traitor, one supporting the oppressor, one profiting even off their own people. Friends, the way tax collectors earned profit was by taking the tax, and whatever more they collected on top of the tax, they could keep. There were no regulations on these exactions, it seemed. And so, most any Jew despised tax collectors. According to Jewish tradition, the very touch of a tax collector rendered a house unclean. Tax collectors often did business with Gentiles, that is, non-Jews, rendering them further unclean. Friends, this is why in Matthew 18, when Jesus is talking about church discipline and putting people out of the church, he says, treat the individual under church discipline as a Gentile or as a tax collector. Beloved, tax collectors were on the outs when it came to religious piety, which makes what Jesus says to Levi so scandalous. What is Jesus? The righteous guy. God himself. Say to Levi, oh, we would expect him to say shame on you. Woe to you. But surprise. Jesus doesn't say that. Friends, what does Jesus say to Levi? Verse 14, look with me. And Jesus said to Levi, follow me. Follow me. Surprising words from Jesus. Friends, we're at a surprise party today. Follow me, Jesus said. And it's the same thing he said to those four fishermen, Simon, Andrew, James, John, back in chapter one, fishermen whom Levi very well may have taxed. His booth was near the sea after all. And yet Jesus says to him, follow me. And if you're reading this right, you should be thinking what? Jesus, you want Levi on your team? Your religious church, we don't even know what to call it yet. But disciple making team. You want a tax collector. Yup. That's who Jesus calls. Who he initiates toward, talking about how Jesus' ministry was active. One commentator said, Jesus is not sitting at home, taking calls, he's out on the street making calls. And he calls Levi, the tax collector. And Levi obeys, he leaves everything, leaves his profession. Rose and followed Jesus, verse 14 says. Friends, I wonder if you sang the old hymn, And Can It Be? It recites the experience of all Christians when it says, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Friends, Levi, this great sinner, leaves behind what he was likely sinfully doing. If you're gonna have a relationship with Jesus, you're gonna have to break up with your sins. You're going to have to leave your sins if you're going to follow Jesus. But repentance isn't really the point of our text. No doubt, repentance was at the heart of Jesus' message. We saw this in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 in the gospel call. But repentance is not what Jesus leads with here. Here in chapter 2, we we don't see a long address about repentance. Instead, we see a feast, a a party, our first party, a big old party. Beloved, Jesus doesn't just make Levi a disciple. He goes to his house for dinner. (laughs) Verse 15. And as Jesus reclined at table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples for there were many who followed him. Okay, it's party time. How do I know that? Well, this word reclining refers to the culinary posture customary, especially at feasts and festivals where your head would face the table, your feet would extend outward from it, trying to model this so you're kind of leaning on an elbow, relaxing, eating. When dining, dining formally in a home, guests reclined on a couch that stretched around three sides of a room. The host took the central place surrounded by a U-shaped series of tables. And I mention the host because did you notice our text said the tax collectors and sinners were, were reclining with Jesus. One theologian commented that the reclining of sinners and tax collectors with Jesus suggests that he, rather than Levi, is the real host of the party. Friends, Jesus ain't just attending the party, sneaking in the back door, he's throwing it for tax collectors, for sinners. Sinners were people who would have been known to disregard the laws of the Jews, the Torah, and Jesus invites those people to his feast. What kind of love is this? Talk about love feast, Cam, like Jude from last week. Now, let's be clear. In reclining with sinners, Jesus was not condoning sin, Jesus was not saying, what you do doesn't matter, love is love, be whatever you want. No, what Jesus was doing was loving people. Friends, it is possible and often preferable to spend time with people without condoning everything they do And condemning them for everything they do. It is possible. Often preferable. To spend time with people. Without condoning everything they do. And condemning them for everything they do. Jesus was loving people. He was also identifying with people. Oh you're looking for Jesus? Yeah he's uh, with the sinners. Because as we'll soon see. That's who he came for. That's who he came to take the place of. As we saw earlier in chapter one, Jesus would undergo the baptism sinners underwent. He'd walk through the wilderness sinners walked. And here we see he'd eat at the party sinners feasted at. I, I love this. Did you notice last time we were in Mark, the passage stopped with teaching about forgiveness, right? Jesus healing, the, forgiving the paralytic sins. But the Bible doesn't end there. No, Jesus goes still further. Further. Beyond forgiveness to fellowship. Beloved, does it strike you that Jesus isn't only interested in forgiving you, he's also interested in fellowshipping with you, having relationship with you, knowing you, providing for you, eating with you? This is what Jesus does with sinners who come to him. He does not merely pronounce the sinners forgiven, he feasts with sinners. This is what God has done throughout the entirety of Scripture, feast with his people. So Adam and Eve, the first full day of their existence is the seventh day of creation, the day that God rested. Their lives began in enjoying God's rest. And what did God tell them to do? Be fruitful, multiply, and eat of all these trees, save one. Adam and Eve and God were feasting. In Exodus, right after the people are saved and they get the law in Exodus 23, God commands them to have festivals. The feast of harvest, the feast of ingathering. Christian, did you know you serve a God who commands feasts? In Psalm 23, David writes that his shepherd prepares a table before him in the presence of his enemies. Isaiah 25, sermon I'm gonna preach, or the text I'm gonna preach for Sawyer in a couple of weeks. God says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. He will swallow up death forever. In John 21, Jesus is raised from the dead, sees his disciples and has a fish sandwich with them because don't you know that coming up out of the grave will make a man hungry. In Revelation 19, the end of time when God's people are finally saved by our God, the grand event is depicted as a marriage supper between the lamb and his bride, a feast camp. Sisters and brothers, are you hungry? Oh, then Jesus is who you're looking for. Because after all, beloved, it's not like Jesus was just feasting back, feasting back in the Bible times. He's feasting with us now, even with our church, even with you. He feeds us through this table. He feeds us through this book. A pastor named Francis Grimke said this about gospel churches like ours. He said, every preaching service on the Sabbath is a feast spread by God, and to it all are invited. Is that how you think of church? A feast. Is this how you think of you're God, one who loves to lavish and fill you up. It's really interesting. In 1 Timothy, and Colossians, one marker of a false teacher is that they insist on abstaining from certain foods. But God's like, eat up. Enjoy. Put it on my tab. Enjoy yourself. Enjoy me. Beloved, is this how you think of God? One who happily dines with you? Or do you think he's one who is frustrated and disappointed with you? See, some of you came to church this evening with hopes that are far too small. Some of you just want to get off the hook. You just want to not be in trouble with Jesus. You just hope he's not too disappointed with you because you blew it again this past week for the nth time. Oh, but Christian, dare to believe bigger than that. Far from being standoffish with you, Jesus welcomes you to his table to his grace, to his self, to his person. He is, as we say every week at the top of our service, the friend of sinners. And not everyone likes that. Because you see, after all, there are some party poopers in the text. My three-year-old son, Teddy, would love this sermon because I said the word poop. This is for you, Teddy. (laughs) There are some people who crash this party. And they really represent a second party, a second group of folks. We saw the party for the unrighteous. Now we'll see the party for the self-righteous. Point number two, the party for the self-righteous. The party of the self-righteous, the Pharisees. This is the party against Jesus. Let's look at verses 16 and 17. Jesus is hosting this party with sinners and tax collectors. What happens? Verse 16, look with me. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why did he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Beloved, in his gospel, Mark records Jesus' conflicts. So we saw one of those conflicts last time. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, where the scribes challenged Jesus' authority to forgive sins. Here we see them challenging Jesus for a second time. This time for his willingness to feast with sinners. Now we've met the scribes already in Mark, but not all the scribes were Pharisees. And here we meet the scribes of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a religious sect of pious Jews who believed God's grace extended only to those who kept his law. Uh, They were kind of self-appointed religious watchdogs that sought to ensure strict observance of the Jewish religious law. So you can imagine their horror when they see this guy who is claiming to be a religious teacher eating with those who did not regard this law who categorically did not submit to this law. They were like, this guy is supposed to keep himself pure and clean, and there he is, frolicking in the mud with the pigs. In other words, friends, the Pharisees were scandalized. Because in Jesus' day, eating together was a sign of intimacy, of fellowship. This might be why the Apostle Paul, when he's talking about church discipline, says, don't even eat with such a one. There's lots of things that might or might not mean for us today. But in Jesus' day, eating together was a sign of closeness. And Jesus was close with sinners. And those who thought themselves to not be sinners. The Pharisees, they did not like that. That Jesus was close with sinners. That's why they ask that why question in verse 17. Why is he doing that? Well, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Though Jesus has already shown with the leper that unclean people don't make him become unclean, rather, he makes the unclean become clean, despite that, the Pharisees still ask, why is he doing that? And we'll come back to this question of why. But first, I just want to meditate on this party, this group of Pharisees and their disposition, their heart. Because after all, it might look a lot like yours. So let's compare and contrast Jesus and the Pharisees. Whereas Jesus does not approve of sin, but drew near to sinners, the Pharisees disapproved of sin but drew back from sinners. Whereas Jesus came to the place of sinners, Levi's house, the Pharisees simply wanted sinners to be put in their place. Whereas Jesus stooped down to sinners, the Pharisees simply looked down on sinners. Whereas Jesus tore down the barriers, the Pharisees wanted to keep them up. Whereas Jesus sits with and invites the masses, the Pharisees have an uptight little crew of a select few. Beloved, whereas the tax collectors and sinners attend Jesus' party, the self-righteous stand outside of it, pouting, judging, brooding. I mean, isn't this what we see in the older brother in the account of the prodigal son? It's so interesting. The logic of our passage, Mark 2, 13 and 17, the trajectory of our text, the topography of it, the shape of the text maps so well onto the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. Where you have one son, as DJ said, who's a big sinner, Goes off, disregards the father, winds up wasting his life eating slop with the pigs, which for Jews would have been incredibly scandalous, but he comes home. His father runs to meet him and does what? Throws a party, a feast. He says, slaughter the fattened calf. A party is the right response because my boy who once was lost, lost is now found, who was once dead is now alive, and everyone is having a great time. Everyone except the older brother, who is standing outside the party, furious. He said to his father, I've always kept the rules, and you don't throw any party for me. And the older brother said that. Because how he viewed his relationship with his father was through the grid of his own behavior, strictly. That's why he was so focused on his holiness and his brother's sins. Beloved, an obsession with the sins of others is a telltale sign that you are blind to your own. And when you are obsessed with the sins of others, you are bound to be scandalized by God's grace. Beloved, people who think they've earned their spot in God's kingdom, like Jonah. Remember Jonah, we met him back in January. People like him, like the prodigal son's older brother, people who think they've earned their spot in God's kingdom take great offense at people who got in the kingdom by grace. And they take great offense at the one who brings in the undeserving by grace too. Like, are you serious, God? You let them in? This freeloader, I had to work hard to get here and they just get a pass? Friends, the people who think they've earned their spot in God's kingdom are offended by grace because they take pride in the work they think they did to get into the kingdom. And so grace seems unfair. I worked hard and she didn't. And people would be right to think this if getting into the kingdom was based on our work. But it's not and never has been. Our acceptance into God's kingdom has always and will always be by grace alone, amen? And this truth And the people who believe it scandalize people who think they are saving themselves or who want to claim that they had any part in saving themselves. People like the Pharisees. Friends, there's a a long quote I'm about to read to you about what the Pharisees were so scandalized by in this passage. Cam and I recently talked about how in seminary they teach you to not read long quotes and sermons and I'd like you to know I skipped that day of class. Here we go. Theologian named James Edwards says this. It is commonplace that the scribes and Pharisees opposed Jesus for eating with sinners and tax collectors. But what exactly was it about Jesus' association with such people that offended them? Did Jesus eat with sinners on the condition that they changed their lives? Was his association with tax collectors, prostitutes, the reprobate predicated on their forsaking their wickedness and becoming godly persons? Jesus certainly would have been pleased if that were the result. But if that were his intention, we might expect the religious leaders to applaud him, not oppose him. We know, however, they opposed him, always and everywhere. The scribes are scandalized, however, precisely because Jesus does not make moral repentance a precondition of his love and acceptance. Rather, Jesus loves and accepts tax collectors and sinners as they are. If they forsake their evil way and amend their lives, they do so, as did Zacchaeus, not in order to gain Jesus' favor, but because Jesus had loved them as sinners. Edwards goes on to say, we are not told how many sinners and tax collectors repented and reformed. We are only told that Jesus sowed love as indiscriminately as the sower who threw seed in unpromising places. It is this that scandalized the religious leaders of Jesus' day, As it scandalizes those of our day who define the gospel in terms of pure moral reformation and character improvement, end quote. In other words, friends, if you think the gospel message is do better, you're not only wrong, you're going to be hopping mad when Jesus loves people who've only done worse. If you think the gospel message is God helps those who help themselves, you're going to get hot under the collar when you realize that God helps those who can't help themselves. And that is what attracted people to Jesus. I mean, think about this. Think with me. Think, 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 think. Which party do you want to be invited to? The invite to party Pharisee comes in the mail. White envelope. Hello, you can only come here if you've done right or doing it right and keep doing it right. The invite to Jesus' party sounds like, hey, anyone who hasn't done it right is welcome. Jesus is like, you. Yeah, yeah, you. Morally atrocious you. There's a spot for you in my kingdom. Come on up. I've had a seat saved just for you. I mean, Jesus could not be clearer. This is why he came. The end of verse 17, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And saying that, Jesus wasn't saying there are some people who are sinners and others who are righteous. No, Jesus knew better than anyone that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Jesus knew that only some people believe that about themselves. And it's those people who understand their need for Jesus. It's people who know they are sick who go to the doctor. I recently heard our brother, Jake Fulweiler, preach his first sermon ever. And he made an excellent point. One preachers have been making for centuries, one Jesus makes, and Jake's point was this. If you're here at this church thinking you don't have any sins, that you don't need any saving, Christianity has nothing to offer you. Jesus will do you zero good. If you come to church thinking you're perfect, it's like someone going to a doctor, sitting down and saying, I'm not sick. Doctor's like, yeah, I don't have much for you. But if you understand yourself to be a sinner in need of saving, oh, I know someone who would like to meet you. Just like he says to Zacchaeus, another tax collector, I must eat at your house today. Sinners, Jesus would like to meet you. It would be his greatest delight to save you. It'd be his greatest pleasure to save everyone. But not everyone thinks they need saving. In Luke 14, Jesus tells a really sad story about this fact. He tells a parable about a feast a man threw. Again, Jesus is really into feasts. So he tells this story. A guy throws a feast and invites all the guests you'd expect, right? The fancy people, the got-it-all-together people. And you know what happens? They all make excuses for why they can't come. They basically ignore the invitation because none of them think themselves to need the feast or the person throwing it. So what does the guy do? Who's throwing the feast. He invites the poor, the cripple, the blind, the lame to his feast. It's like 1 Samuel 22, the cam read for us earlier. You remember how in that passage, everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt And everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to David. Friend, they didn't gather to David because David was nice on the harp. But because David foreshadowed the ministry of a greater king, one who would have a following of sinners, of weaklings, of outcasts, of people a lot like us. Beloved, a proud Christian is an oxymoron in the church of God. And so God gives us pictures of beggars, weaklings, children coming to Jesus because they are pictures of us who recognize our need for Jesus. And so we come to Jesus as we are. We don't wait till we've cleaned ourselves up enough. No, we just come to the feast. Friend, if you're thinking, I, I need to wait until I've got it a little more together to come to Jesus, listen to an old hymn that says, let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness Jesus requireth is to feel your need of him. Friend, do you feel your need for Jesus? I do. I'm going to be straight with you. I've had a hard year. Probably one of the hardest of my life. I've got a mother in heaven. Y'all can pray for me. I fly back to D.C. on Wednesday to go deal with her estate, have some very hard conversations, go through the house I grew up in. So i got a mother in heaven, a church in transition, got one of those. When it comes to the church, there's even just been little hardships that have almost been laughable. Earlier this year, I was at a party of Iron City folk, and I accidentally backed into one of your cars. Last night I was having dinner at one of y'all's houses and accidentally broke a window. I'm literally doing a bang up job as your new pastor. I need Jesus. Do you? Do you know yourself to be a sinner? To be spiritually sick? Spiritually dead? Then come to the one who died for you. Which brings us back to the scribes. Really good question. Why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he do that? Jesus tells us straight up, because I love them. Because I came to call them. Because I came to save them. Friends, throughout Mark, Jesus is clarifying his identity and he's clarifying his mission. And praise be to God, his is a mission of mercy. One, he would give his own life to accomplish. Friends, on the cross, Jesus, who never sinned, died in the place of sinners. He bore the wrath sinners deserved for our sins, and he was raised three days later so that anyone who turns from their sins and trusts in him would be granted eternal life, eternal access to the feast of God. Beloved, on the cross, Jesus endured a famine. He was starved of fellowship with God so we could feast with God. On the cross, Jesus endured false accusations like he was enduring here and the accusations of all our sins so we could stand blameless before God. Friends, I don't know how to say it anymore clearly. Jesus came to call sinners and he came to die for them and be raised for them too. And why did he do that? Why did he do, why did he die for you, a tax collector and sinner? Because he loves you because he came to call you, because he came to save you. So let me ask you, which party are you going to? Party for the unrighteous or the party for the self-righteous? Friend, do you happily receive God's grace? Or do you grumpily resent it? The answer will be clear in how you treat others. Paul is such a testimony of this, right? There's hope for Pharisees to get saved too. Paul was a Pharisee. Look at how he treated people before he knew God's grace and after he received it. And I ask you, beloved, are you walking around like a Pharisee? Looking down on others. Why are you doing that? Quit it. Don't you know Jesus said don't do that? Or are you loving people regardless of what they believe and regardless of what they've done? Friend, a basic Christian principle is that people are worthy of love regardless of what they believe or regardless of what they've done. I hope we're like that in this church. Friends, I want a culture of thick grace in our church where we forbear with each other and let each other make mistakes, where we look at one another and don't say, sinner, but where we look at one another and say, Oh, you're a sinner too? Join the club. Friends, we want a church culture of thick grace. That's what I think it felt like to recline with Jesus. Reclining in thick grace where it's like, oh, so this is a space where it's safe to not be perfect. Sisters and brothers, work with me to build that kind of church culture. Tomorrow's Manifold, I'm going to try to provide some suggestions about how you can help build this culture. A culture of thick grace, not thin ice, where if you skate the wrong way, you're going down. No, quite the contrary. We want a place where we lift one another up. Weak as we are. A place where we lift one another's chins up to Jesus. As Lauren Hanson, one of our women's ministers often says. Where we, like Levi, beloved, arise and follow Jesus to the party of all parties. He'll do the hosting. We just do the coming. The needing of him who would love us so well that he would scandalize people who don't have a category for that kind of love. Let's pray. What wondrous love is this Jesus that you'd let us feast at your table. Lord, I pray now that you would turn the appetites of anyone here who is feeding on sin and turn us to feed on you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.